Matthew chapter 13. We're going to finish up uh, this section of Matthew this morning. And I just want to read it for us as we uh, be familiar with our text, Matthew 13. And we're just looking at verses 53 to 58 this morning. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue, so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get these, all these things? So they were offended at him. But, when Jesus, but Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. One thing that we looked at last week was the beginning of this little two-message series on the danger and power of unbelief. Uh, When you stop and you think about it, we mentioned last week several things. When people believed God, what what happened in the Scriptures? Incredible things happened. Um, But we want to focus on that last verse. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. As you look down through history throughout the Bible, you see various situations where the power of unbelief stopped the blessing of God. Just stopped it dead in its tracks. When you stop and think about it, Eve failed to believe God, and the whole world was cursed, right? Thanks a lot, Eve. The world itself failed to believe God's word when Noah warned it, remember? And what happened? They were destroyed in the flood. Israel refused to believe God, and they wandered 40 years in the desert. Again, they refused to believe God, and they ultimately were scattered throughout the entire earth for centuries. Pharaoh, in the Old Testament, refused to believe God's word through Moses, and he lost his slaves, his son, and his army. Aaron, as you recall, refused to believe God and his word about worship, and he let the, led the people into idolatry back in the time. And as a result, there were 3,000 lost lives. Even Moses refused to believe God, and it cost him the long-awaited promised land. When you stop and you think of the different people who failed to believe God, even in the New Testament, the rich young ruler... He failed to believe the words of Christ and was damned to hell. The Pharisees refused to believe God, refused to believe Jesus Christ, and they died in their sins. And they went to a place where they would never know anything but pain and suffering, the Bible says. Many of the disciples, even of Christ, it tells us, when he began to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, you recall, after, after that time with him, it says they walked no more with him. They turned their back on him. They stepped into eternity without God. But I think the greatest illustration of unbelief, the greatest illustration in the New Testament, maybe even the Bible, 
is that of Judas. Think about it. Judas was there with the twelve. He was there with Christ. He saw everything they saw. And yet, after three years in the presence of God himself, the living truth, he didn't believe. And he was damned to go to hell. We talk a lot about the power of faith today in our Christian lives, but we have to remember that the power of faith brings blessings, it brings eternal life, it brings us to heaven. But on the other side of the issue, there's a power, there's a danger to unbelief. And that unbelief can bring pain, it can bring sorrow, it can bring remorse, it can bring eternal hell. And that's the, the dangerous power of unbelief as we know it. The Lord says, he that believes is redeemed, but he who does not believe is condemned. Well, we've come to Matthew 13, and this is kind of the final element of the Lord's talking and and kind of teaching his disciples in chapter 13. He's giving them the parables. We've gone through that. And he described the age in which they're going to be actually out there sharing the gospel with people, sharing the good news of Christ. And the one thing that they had a hard time understanding, and he used parables to do that, is he warned them that as they go out into the world, that it's not going to be um, a bed of roses. That there's going to be people who oppose the gospel. Because this form of the mediated kingdom on earth, you have, and he used the parables to describe this, you have both believers and unbelievers. You have both belief and unbelief. And he talked about that in the parables. He said there would be hard soil, there would be shallow soil, soil, and there would also be weedy soil. There's going to be very few people who look at that pearl of great price and say, wow, I want that. I'm willing to give up everything. There's very few people who find the treasure in the field, as the parable said, and is willing to sell everything to purchase the field to obtain the treasure. In other words, there's going to be unbelief outside of these walls as we go out into the world with the glorious gospel of Christ. That's the character of the kingdom in which we live today. And so our Lord wants them to understand that when they go out there, it's not just going to be a bed of roses. As they go out and call men to repentance and to salvation, they're going to be faced with people who are not believers. They're going to be faced with people who, with people who oppose them. And frankly, if you're out there giving the gospel and nobody opposes you, there's something wrong with your message. <laughs> there's something wrong with your gospel. I don't know what kind of gospel you have, but you don't have the gospel of the Bible if people don't oppose it to your face. As a matter of fact, he gave eight little incidences there. You remember where the people are confronted. We put them in your bulletin last week. And out of the eight, only two were examples of someone who believed. Same as with same ratio as with the the uh, the soils in the parable. Three were bad soil. One was good soil. So don't be surprised, beloved, when you go outside these walls and you get all excited about evangelism and you start sharing your faith, that you get rejected. That you get criticized. That's just part of it. There's going to be one good soil and three that are not receptive to the gospel. Well, the first incident is what we're looking at here this morning, kind of the second half of it, actually. We looked at part of it last week. It's a way of introduction. 
But the first response is given to us here. After we saw Christ leave, he departed from Capernaum. And he arrived in the village where he was raised up. Remember? Nazareth. In verse 54, as we read, it calls it his own country. And a parallel passage in Mark confirms that this is Nazareth. It's a little village where the Lord lived, where he began his ministry, where he grew up. And this is really what we're reading is the fulfillment of John 1.11, where he said, he came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. For 30 years, he ministered in their presence. For 30 years, he lived a perfect life before them. Growing up. And when he comes back to present them the message of the kingdom, their unbelief basically just stares him straight down. And it says that he's thwarted, he's put off by doing any mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. That's how powerful unbelief can be. And we looked at last week how this is the second time that he did this, the second time that he went to Nazareth. About a year earlier than this incident, he went back to Nazareth, and they were so upset after he taught them, they uh, basically wanted to throw him off a cliff. They wanted to murder him. They couldn't deny his wisdom. They couldn't deny his works. They had obviously benefited from both. He promised that he was the Messiah. He showed them all the The words, and they heard his words, they saw his works, and they still, instead of embracing their Messiah, they endeavored to kill him as a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And so he comes back a year later, and here he is, he's basically doing the same thing. He goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, sat down and he taught. He taught them the wisdom of God, that he was the fulfillment of the promise of God, And their reaction, it tells us in the text, is that they were astonished. That's pretty good. I mean, that would be a good thing to hear at the door when people are leaving after a sermon. Man, pastor, I was astonished at your teaching. I'd be like, wow, who are you listening to? (laughs) And they began to ask questions. Verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? In other words, they couldn't deny that he was an incredible teacher. They couldn't deny his wisdom. When he opened his mouth, everything that came out was just so profound that it just staggered them. It was so clear and yet so simple. But equally, it was so hard for them to believe. His speech itself was very unique. They said, no one has ever spoken like this man. They couldn't deny his mighty deeds or his miracles. They were everywhere. Basically, disease was healed in that area where Christ was. And so they were amazed, they were astonished, they were just blown away. And yet, verse 58 says that he couldn't do many mighty works there, Because of what? Their unbelief. 
How is it that you can be unbelieving in the face of such an astounding individual? How is it that they can reject Jesus Christ when his wisdom and his power are just incredible when it comes to human terms? How is it that you can't believe that he is from God when there's really only one explanation for what he says, for what he does? It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Even Nicodemus, one of the teachers in John 3, he says, we know that you're a teacher from God because nobody can do these things except they come from God. Amazing thing. And it's a, it's a very strong way to use apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, to say, you know what, it wasn't the enemies who criticized Jesus' words and his works. They were blown away by him. They just didn't come up with the right conclusion. They were willfully unbelieving people. And that's one of the responses we're going to see when we go out into the world and we try to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear, or maybe they heard it before. It's going to be that stony ground, that hard soil, and the seed is never going to penetrate because there's a hard, bitter heart there filled with unbelief. In John 3.18, Jesus, the Word of God says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. The reason that he's condemned for his unbelief is that the Bible says that light has come into the world and men love darkness, what? Rather than light. Because their deeds were evil and everywhere preaching or practicing evil hates the light. Whenever they're practicing evil, they don't want to go out into the light. That doesn't come from the light. They don't want to go into the light because everything's going to be exposed. It wasn't a lack of evidence that these folks didn't believe. They had evidence coming out their ears, but it was a love for evil. There's a big difference. It wasn't a lack of proof, but it was a love of their sin. They were willfully unbelieving. With that in mind, we come to this place in Nazareth. And the first point was last week, unbelief blurs the obvious. Unbelief blurs the obvious. Verse 54, they ask the question, where did this guy get the power to do all these uh, mighty works and where does he get the wisdom? They knew the answer. That was obvious. It was from God. They even didn't even uh, deny that he was doing works. Only God could do what he did. He banished disease from Palestine, basically, in the day in Israel. He spoke with such incredible wisdom and clarity. Only God could do that. That could only come from God. But because they wouldn't accept that Jesus is from God, they blurred out the obvious with their question, kind of a silly question, where did the man get this wisdom and mighty works? They blurred out the obvious. Remember, when you go out and you share the gospel with people, and you do it clearly, and you do it the way the Bible has it recorded for us, people are going to be hard. They're going to be unbelieving. It's not that they need more proof. It's that 
they just refuse to believe. They refuse to believe because they're overlooking the obvious. Secondly, unbelief also builds up the irrelevant. It builds up the irrelevant. Have you ever had the opportunity to maybe go out and share your faith with somebody, maybe at work or whatever, and it gets to a point where you share the faith with them and, and maybe you brought them to church? And you're thinking, okay, well, this is good, you know, and they're, they're in church with you, and afterwards you kind of plan to go out for a meal after church. And you sit them down, and you begin to talk, and you kind of say, well, what you, would you think about the church service? Just curious. Ah, I'm sorry, you know. Well, what'd you think? And they start with irrelevant things. Well, you know, the guy in front of me, the guy with the big bald head, he, I, just, I couldn't see it. You know, I kept on moving. That was very irritating. And then the singer that sang, that just wasn't real good, and that kind of bothered me. And then, you know, the seats, they just weren't comfortable. And I didn't like the music, and the pastor was too loud and too long. And, you know, and they go off on these irrelevant things. They totally miss the point of any spiritual truth being conveyed to their heart at all. They willingly refuse to see what is clear, and they divert it to something else. They build up the irrelevant. It happens when you start to witness to somebody, and they'll start talking about something else. You know, you're sharing the gospel with them, and they go, well, do you believe in aliens? You're like, what? Well, what about life on other planets? What, you know, what do you think about you know, this or whatever? Hey, did you ever read that book, The Guy Went to Heaven, and, 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 or The Other Guy That Went to Hell? And they, they go down these paths, and you're trying to constrain them to the subject of the gospel, but it's almost impossible. Because they're not interested in the gospel. They're interested in sidestepping it. You can always tell when someone is sincerely being brought to the Lord by him, a true seeker. All you do is you present the gospel. And a lot of times, someone who's truly being worked on by God will say, that's interesting. Can you tell me a little more about that? Now, when did this happen to you? How, how, does this, how do I appropriate this in my life? How does this happen? So it's not by what I do. They want to know more. Then you know God is working there. But you can also tell a people who just doesn't want to believe because they divert all over the place. Well, the Bible's a bunch of fairy tale. You know, have you ever read it? Well, no, but, you know, and they go on and on and on. It's, it's totally irrational. I mean, if you went to a classroom and you stood up in class and said, you know, this textbook just stinks, teacher. It's no good. And he said, oh, well, you read it? And you say, well, no. What would the class do? They would laugh at you. They would say, what a moron. What an idiot. Who is this guy? He doesn't even read the text, and yet he's willing to criticize it? They overlook the obvious, and they build up the irrelevant. See, think, in Jesus' time, here you have these religious leaders, and they were like the ultimate in their egos were just off the chart. And they had already believed that they were good enough to get in the kingdom of God just by their own legalistic laws and rules that they kept. So they they weren't willing to come up and confess their own sinfulness and accept Christ's way of salvation because they didn't need it, frankly. And they were also blown away by the fact that anyone from their little rinky-dinky town 
has arisen to such stature as Christ. That just blew them away. They just wouldn't accept that anyone from their community could have gone as high as he did in wisdom and these mighty works that he does. And see, you know what was at the core of this? Was pride. Honestly, that's what, that's what was at the core. Pride and jealousy. It was all bound up in their evil, unbelieving hearts. And so they came to this. Look at what they say in verse 55 and verse 56. I mean, here, you know, Christ is basically sharing this truth with him. Incredible. And they're blown away by his teaching. And they just bring up all this irrelevant stuff. In verse 55, after he teaches, they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, we know this guy. This guy grew up with us. How can he stand up here and and teach this way? How can he do these incredible works? Why are all these people following him? I mean, the fact that his dad was a carpenter has nothing to do at all with what he just shared with them. Would you agree? Nothing. It's just out of the blue. Then is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? James is the one who later became the head of the Jerusalem church and presided at the Jerusalem council there in Acts 15. Joseph was obviously named from his father. Simon, not to be confused with Peter, and Judas, not to be confused with the apostle. These were brothers of the Lord. And then verse 56 says, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? Jesus had a pretty big family. And I mentioned this last week, that word, their carpenter, in the original language, is tecton, and it means somebody who works with hard materials. Not necessarily wood. We think of a carpenter as somebody who's just somebody who works with wood. But Jesus, Joseph and Jesus may have been a mason too. He may have been somebody who works with rocks. I'd better clarify that, not a mason as as far as the the group of masons that are around today. But a mason who works with, you know, hard material. Most of the homes back there, we saw pictures last week, were built out of what? Stones. Brick. And so it's interesting that they looked at Joseph and they looked at Christ And they said, these are common laborers. And he's saying he's God? I mean, isn't it incredible that God dignifies a common laborer by bringing the Messiah into such a family? By this time, probably Joseph had already died because he's not even mentioned. Just says he's the son of the carpenter. Jesus may have taken over the family business and perhaps... Before he began his ministry, that's what he did. And they're, they're looking at Jesus and saying, this guy can't be anybody special. He's one of us. We know his family. I mean, what an irrelevant thought. What does that have to do with the message that he just shared with you that you were so astounded and blown away by? How does that impact in any way, shape, or form the fact that he did miracles? How can you use that to explain how he raised somebody from the dead? 
It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with it. But that's so typical of someone who possesses unbelief. Unbelief will always find something that doesn't matter and attach itself to it and make that an issue and kind of divert away from the truth of the gospel. So they're more concerned with family credentials than they are with the message that he just shared with them. Mark even adds that he was also a carpenter, Christ himself. You know, he didn't come from the right kind of family. He didn't have the right kind of job. He was just a common person. And his brothers were just brothers and sisters. We know them. This guy can't be anybody special. I mean, it's hard for us to sit here today and understand how these people who were face-to-face with Christ and the miracles and his words and his teachings could not believe in him. That's hard for us to understand. But that's the power and the danger of unbelief. In John 7, verses 14, 15, he takes the, it's the same approach, basically. This time it's in Jerusalem. He comes there in verse 14. It says that he goes right into the temple and he teaches, just as he had done in Nazareth. And it's the same reaction. The Jews marveled, it says. They were literally amazed at his teaching. But then here's the reaction. How does this man know how to do this? He's never studied. Isn't that silly? They're saying this guy can't be who he obviously is because he hasn't gone to the right school. He doesn't have a degree. They have all this false criteria that they line these people up against. And they totally ignore the teaching that amazed them and disqualify him because of his lack of credentials, even though he can do all these miraculous things. They did the same thing to the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verses 12 to uh, 14, when Peter and John were teaching. It's, he's, he's, here's the message he's giving, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which by you must be saved. That's a pretty straightforward message, speaking of Christ. And it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they marveled. They're thinking, how can these hayseeds, these guys from northern Galilee, come down here and and teach us? We're the religious leaders of the day. And so they divert to a totally different topic. And they said there is not his mother called Mary. Obviously, they perceived Mary to be an extraordinary person, which she probably was, obviously. But I have to say this a little bit about Mary. She's not the queen of heaven, as I was taught in the Roman Catholic Church. She was common. She was a common lady, just like you, just like me. And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, they were obviously connected all together as a family, just basic guys. There would be some people that want us to believe that Mary is something more than what Scripture points her out to be. They think that she's perpetually a virgin. She was not only 
a virgin when Christ was born, but the Catholic Church teaches that she was born of a virgin and she will always remain a virgin. Pretty scary stuff. That's why they pray to Mary, because they think that she is a, a co-redemptor with Christ. She helps Jesus save us. And they would say here, well, when it says here brothers, it's talking about, you know, like brother. Hey, hey, brother. How you doing, brother? It's talking about that. It's not talking about his actual family because we know that Mary had no other children other than Jesus. Really? Well, why in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, does it say that Jesus was her firstborn? That's interesting. If Jesus was her firstborn, that kind of implies that she had other children. In Matthew 12, 46, 47, we see the family indicated there, and in John 12 and 7 and Acts 1, so forth. Mary was obviously an ordinary woman. I mean, obviously great in her faith and great in her godliness. I mean, she, she gave birth to the Son of God. But the brothers and sisters were ordinary people. But Mary wasn't supernatural. And so their question was, with this kind of family, all these common people, where did he get all these things? Let me say a couple words about Jesus' childhood, because some people have written books on Jesus' childhood, and they have Jesus out in the neighborhood, you know, at the age of six, and they're skipping along, and oh, he sees a little bird that was injured, and he reaches down and heals the little bird, or, you know, whatever. The kids wanted something to eat, so he just creates things out of thin air, because he's God, and he can do that. That's what these people write about Jesus' childhood. I don't think that's scriptural. It's not found in scripture anyway. The first place we see Jesus as a, a, a young person is, is in Luke Two, where, where basically he goes to the temple with his, with his parents and they lose him. He's a 12-year-old. And they're saying, boy, he's growing in wisdom and stature. He's growing in favor with God and with men. And he's asking these questions of the doctors in the temple. And they left him there. They forgot him. They forgot God. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Well, many people think that's the only insight we have, so he must have been this miracle worker when he was a a young little child, but I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because of their reaction here in this text. See, if they weren't so impressed with Jesus' miracles and everything, if he did them since he was two, it would be no big deal. Oh, yeah, Jesus, he's been doing this stuff forever. No, I don't think Jesus did anything supernatural before he began his actual ministry. So 30 years of his life, say, were lived pretty much an ordinary life. I don't think he was out in the wood shop, you know, um, Joseph says, hey, you know, <clears throat> you need to cut up these bricks and, and straighten out these logs over here. Okay, dad, and dad leaves and he just, you know, does a genie thing and everything's done. You know, I don't think that happened. I think he actually did the work. He was supernatural. He was God. He was perfect. And the other reason I believe that is because Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. Well, if he's out there in the garage snapping his fingers and moving things around, super, that doesn't sound much of a servant to me. So I think he had a pretty ordinary, although it'd be sinlessly perfect, childhood, if you can call that ordinary. 
And that's why they didn't make the connection. They looked at Jesus and they said, this is the guy we grew up with. There's also some jealousy there. They didn't understand that he was their sympathetic high priest. And so they drag out all this irrelevant stuff about how common he is. Verse 56, they say, where did this man get all these things? See, they asked the right questions, but they didn't come up with the right answers. See, some people are asking right questions today, but they're not landing on the right answer. They're unbelieving in spite of their own questions. And one thing they can't believe is that Jesus is from God. He's too common. So they build up all this irrelevant stuff to kind of sidetrack. They blur the obvious. Thirdly, unbelief blinds to the truth. It blinds to the truth. Verse 57 says there in our text, So they were offended at him. These are people he grew up with. They were offended at him. They were offended by him. That that word offend means to scandalize. Which means they, 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 they kind of stumbled. It means that there was a wall there. They couldn't handle it. It was too much for him to be the Messiah. And they were offended at him. They just looked at him and said, this, this can't be him. There's no way. This is Jesus, the carpenter's son. And they were offended by his background and his commonness. The fact that he came from their own. And they were offended by the way he taught. Because he probably unmasked their own hypocrisy when he taught. He must have talked about their sinfulness and their need to repent. And the whole thing basically just offended them. It just turned them off. And so these people weren't neutral. Is my point. They were antagonistic toward Christ. They were bitter toward him. And just as Isaiah said... In chapter 13, in the beginning of chapter 13, he said that, that their eyes would not see and their ears would not, what? Hear. And their minds would not understand. They were blinded. Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 28. He says that the Jews looked at Christ and they stumbled. He was a stumbling block to them. But we who believe see him as the power and wisdom of God. His words and his works reveal God to us. Why wouldn't they believe? Because they weren't ready to have their sin revealed. See, when you go out and you present the gospel to people, and that's, that's basically the bottom line, it's not more proof that people need to believe the gospel. It's a willingness to abandon their own sinfulness. It's a willingness to look at their own life and say, wow, I really messed this up. I need something bigger than myself. And that demands kind of a plowing of that hard heart, that hard soil of the heart in preparation of the Spirit of God. And sometimes God uses people like us to go out and to minister to people. And you would see God beginning to plow up that hard ground. So there's always hope. But it can be very discouraging when you run into somebody like that. Paul says very clearly the natural man does not understand the things of God. They're just on a whole different level. Sometimes I catch myself at the coffee shop. I'll sit, be sitting there having a cup of coffee and somebody will bring up some spiritual question and I begin to answer it. And then I think, these guys don't have a clue what I'm talking about. 
They just don't have an idea. It's like they're on a whole different plane. And so I'm thinking, not that it's difficult. I'm not like going to some big theological Christianese language or anything. I'm trying to share it as basic as I can, but I'm thinking they're coming from a position of non-believing. They're, they're not faith. They have no faith. They, they don't have the Spirit of God inside them. So what seems very simple for me is not for them. They can't get beyond it. When God talks about Israel when they were set aside, he says in one sentence, they were broken off by unbelief. A refusal to believe. An unwillingness to deal with your sin. And so our Lord gives this beautiful illustration. That when you go out in the world and you see the kingdom is the way it is now, in this church age, you're, you're going to hit unbelief on every corner almost. And this is how you can recognize it. In John 8, he says, If you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you continue in my word. Remember the story of Lydia in Acts 16. It says there that her heart was opened by the Lord, and then the gospel message came. That's the pattern. God has to open somebody's heart. You can't strong-arm somebody into the kingdom of God. We were talking on Wednesday night at our Bible study about the idea of going out and, and uh, sharing, sharing Christ with people and things like that. And, and one of the, the basic um, points was that we need to go out and evangelize, but we also need to do it in the Spirit. You can go out and evangelize in the flesh, Right? You can turn a lot of people off real quick. And I brought up the, the point that how many times when we go out to evangelize or we share Christ, do we actually ask God, do you want me to share anything with this person? See, we just assume that that's our mandate. You go out and you just you know, hammer people <laughs> with the truth. And sooner or later, somebody's going to believe. I, I don't believe that's what they were taught to do in the New Testament. I don't believe that's what we should do today. The mandate is to go into all the world and make disciples. But when's the last time you paused and you said, you know what, that neighbor across the street, maybe, I'm, maybe I need to pray if I, I should go over there and share the gospel with him. Maybe God will say no. It's not the right time. See, and we have to be okay with that. So the Lord responds here from all these reactions. In verse 57, he says, a statement, it's kind of a proverb. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And what he's saying is, I'm fulfilling this proverb in your presence. See, they're saying, you know, no one can come from outside of our house, outside of our, uh, from our town and be an expert. They have to come from outside. And he's saying, no. I was raised with you folks, and you know what? I'm the son of God, whether you accept it or not. Even more tragic, John 7, 5 says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Can you imagine being a brother or sister to Christ growing up? Just think about it. I mean, think about it. If you had, you know, a couple brothers, you know, I mean, and they're sinners, and you're not. Because you're the son of God. You're perfect. You're sinless. So what do brothers do? They get in trouble, right? Not Jesus. I mean, how long would it take before a little resentment would build up in that family toward, oh, little brother Jesus, yeah, never does anything wrong. Think about it. 
A lot of resentment in that family. And it built up over the years. So it says even his own brothers did not believe in him at that certain point. He didn't even believe him in his own family. Their unbelief just basically blinded them. There was a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy. Deuteronomy 32, 20, it says this, children in whom there is no faith. And that's what happened to their family. Nobody in their hometown believed in Christ. It says they rejected him. Well, the last thing, unbelief blocks the supernatural. Look at verse 58. It says that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief has the power to block the supernatural. Now, you have to understand this, lest you say that we're more powerful than God. I'm not saying that. So let me explain it to you. See, God did, through Christ, he did a lot of works. Wouldn't you say that? Mighty works. I mean, it says that they're not even contained in the pages of Scripture, all that he's done. And many of them were done in response to what? A person's faith, right? We've we've looked at those healings. But you have to remember that some of them were done when there was no faith at all. In other words, Christ healed faithless people. (laughs) When's the last time you heard that from one of these health, wealth, and prosperity teachers? Many of the miracles Jesus did were done where there was no faith at all on the person who was receiving the miracle. Think about it. When he raised somebody from the dead, do you think that person had faith? Kind of hard for what? A corpse to have faith, right? They're dead. Or how about the guy, the demoniac? And he cast the demons out. There was no faith there, obviously. He was demon-possessed. There are times when he acted, he responded to a person's faith, but he also acted where there was no faith. But the thing that you have to understand is that God always acts sovereignly. He always acts sovereignly, with or without a person's faith. Because we serve a sovereign God. While faith is not necessary for miracles, the unbelief that we're talking about here, on the other hand, that willing, hard, Soil that's just impenetrable. It's always going to stop the miraculous hand of God. See, me. he may heal somebody who's neutral. He may heal somebody who's kind of in the middle. He may heal somebody who's kind of open to it. Maybe a man who says, you know, hey, I believe, help my unbelief, that kind of thing. There's a mixture of things. But where there's a hard-hearted unbelief, just a, a, a wickedness almost, That blocks the supernatural, anything. Look over at at Luke 17 with me as we close out today. Luke 17. Remember, this is the story where the ten lepers meet Jesus. Remember that? And they meet Jesus, and Jesus says, Go to the priest and show him that you are clean. And pass the test he gives. In other words, when somebody had leprosy back in that day, they were ostracized from society because it was considered a contagious disease. It could even be 
contagious through the air, the form of leprosy they had. And so in the Jewish laws, they had certain, if you had leprosy on a, a nice day, you had to stay like 10 feet away from somebody. On a windy day, you had to stay 150 feet away from somebody. That was just the rules of the land. And so when you were a leper, you weren't allowed to be around people that were well. You were ostracized from society. And so Jesus comes in these these 10 lepers, basically. says, go to the priest and show them that you are clean. And they did that so that they could put the lepers back in society. They'd give them a certificate. There was a whole thing that they had to go through. But it says at the end of that story, that one came back to give glory to God. Remember, and Jesus asked, where are the other nine? Only one has come back to glorify me? And then he says this. He says, your faith has made you what? Whole or well. Do you think he's talking about his leprosy there? I don't, because he's already been healed. He didn't mean the man was cleansed from leprosy. He had already done that. He cleansed all ten of them. He even cleansed the other nine that were ungrateful. Kind of a picture of God's grace in a big way. What he, what, what he meant was, I healed them physically by my sovereign power, by my sovereign choice. And their unbelief ended the process at that point. Yeah, they got their physical healing, but that's all they got. But you, you came back to me, and you gave glory to the Son of God. And you're going to receive not only a physical healing, but he says, your faith has made you whole or well. And wholeness is not just physical. It's physical and spiritual. So that man received salvation for his soul. So while God will heal with or without faith by his sovereign choice, when it comes to the unbelief of the heart, speaking spiritually, that's going to stop any kind of divine and supernatural intervention. It goes right back to Matthew 7 where it says, Do not give that which is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. In Matthew 12, remember the Jews came and said, we want a sign, we want a sign, do a mighty work for us, do a mighty work for us. And what he says, he says, I'm not going to do any such sign for this adulterous, evil, unbelieving nation. So when you find a person who is willfully hard-hearted and unbelieving, they can run around all they want demanding miracles and ask God to do certain things for them. Oh, if I believe if this happened or I believe if that But you know what? That's not really the issue. The issue is their own sinfulness. They're not convicted of their own sinfulness. Unbelief is very powerful. It's very dangerous. It blurs the obvious. It builds up the irrelevant. It blinds people to the truth. And it blocks out any kind of supernatural interaction. Look over at John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This kind of gives us a little story here of an individual, a blind man. And just follow along as we go through this quickly. It says in verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw 
a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made, and, and made clay with his saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go and wash in the, the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. Others said, well, it's like him. And he said, no, I'm the one. I'm he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and he said, well, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I washed and I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, well, I don't know. And they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. They wanted an answer. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees who asked him again how he had received his sight, he said to them, okay, well, I'll go through the story again. He put clay on my eyes and, he, and, and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. What's that? Irrelevant, right? They raise this irrelevant thing right out of the blue. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So now they they begin to call Jesus names. And there was a division among them. Verse 17. Then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, well, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight. In other words, they called him a liar, basically. Until they called the parents of him who had received the sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son, Duh. And that he was born blind. Duh again. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. In other words, either they knew and they weren't saying, or they were just intimidated, or maybe they didn't know. So they point to their son, he is of age, ask him. (laughs) He'll speak for himself. Which is the legal thing to do. His parents, verse 22, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already, if anyone confessed that he was Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be kicked out. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they called again the man who was blind, look at this, and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Think of that statement. 
That is such a crazy statement. Verse 25, he answered and he said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. And frankly, I really don't care. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. In other words, you can't argue with the evidence here, guys. Verse 26, then they said to him again, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Can you imagine the frustration on this guy? You know, he wants to go out and, and look at all the things he's never seen. And he's being held there, being asked these stupid questions over and over and over again. Interrogation. Verse 27, he answered him. He says, you know what? I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then he gets a little sarcastic with him. He says, do you want to become his disciples too? He's saying this to the religious leaders. Verse 28, and they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. But we, can you hear the, just the pride and the arrogance here? But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, which is kind of this low life, whoever he is, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of anyone Open the eyes of one who has been born blind. In other words, this is a miracle above all miracles. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do it. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? <laughs> Just total prideful, arrogant. You can just see him in their flowing robes and their gold. And, and it says they cast him out. And Jesus, because he's compassionate, he heard, him that, heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, in other words, Christ was looking for this guy. He didn't want him to be discouraged. He said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, look at this. Who is he? <laughs> Lord, that I may believe in him. Verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you now. In other words, that would be me. That's what Jesus is saying. His reaction, verse 38, then he said, Lord, I believe. And what's that followed with? And he worshiped him. And then Jesus says this, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Incredible story. Incredible. And it just shows you how people can raise all sorts of things that fly in the face of the evidence that's clearly before them. 
And this guy that was born blind, he's healed miraculously. And all they're concerned about is, well, Jesus did it on the Sabbath. Which legally wasn't even a wrong thing to do. I mean, this man, this guy who was born blind, who has faith in Christ, is going to spend forever in the presence of Christ. And the others, because of their unbelief, they literally blocked any supernatural work in their, in their hearts. And you think of a warning. Think of Hebrews 3.12. The writer says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that speaks to our hearts and shows us how dangerous and how powerful unbelief can be. And Lord, I'm sure that most of the people in our building here today have believed in you, have trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's all well and good. And Lord, I I pray that when we go out of this building, when we leave these four walls, that we'll go out and understand that we're going into a lost and dying world that's filled with unbelieving hearts that need to hear the gospel. But Father, I pray that we would wait on you, that your spirit would lead us to those people who are ready to hear it. That we wouldn't just go out and throw a, a big blanket over everybody and assume that that's our task. But Lord, that we would wait. You even told the the disciples in the early church, to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit to come upon them. And Lord, we know that when we share the message of the gospel, some will receive it and some won't. Probably more won't than than will, but Lord, we ask that you would give us the, the motivation and the ability to do so because we have the Spirit within us. Lord, I pray if there's any here who are still in unbelief this morning. I pray that you would work in their heart as only you can. Lord, maybe they believe a little. I pray that they would, maybe they believe in God and they're willing to kind of endure the teaching. But Father, I pray that you would help their unbelief. That would be their prayer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me put all the puzzles pieces of the puzzle together so that I could have true believing faith. Lord, only you can do that. It's a, it's, a, it's a miraculous thing from your hand. But Lord, there has to be a willingness. There has to be a yielding. How those two things work together, we don't know, but that's what your word says. And we've seen that clearly this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw hearts to you and dismiss us with your blessing and just uh, give us a good good week coming up. Lord, I pray for Sam Samuel as he recovers from his surgery on his knee this last week. I just pray that the surgery will heal up and that uh, you would guard against any infection, help him with his rehab, that everything would go according to plan, and just uh, minister your grace to him and Peggy during this time. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.